Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. Today's episode examines the issue of play, what play entails. We'll look at Kant's ideas about the uh, free play of the faculties, especially in aesthetic contemplation. We'll look at other theories of play, and then we'll apply it to bebop and what we might think of as a politics of play. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. The concept of play is integral to the concept of art. We tend to think of art as different from craftsmanship, right? Aristotle says that the true judge of a saddle is not the person making the saddle, but the person using the saddle, even if that person doesn't know how to make saddles. I don't know particularly how to construct a bike. But I do feel like I am a fairly good judge of whether or not my bike is operating the way that I want it to operate. Now, we might, in sort of loose terms, think of the designer of a bicycle as an artist, right? But in these stricter terms, what we're talking about is craft versus art. We don't always like to make these distinctions. I recognize that. We think of it as somehow demeaning uh, craftsmanship when we do so, but that's not what I'm after at all. I still, I think it's a useful distinction in order to bring out this quality of play that we find so important to art. And it's not like there's no play perhaps in a craftsman's studio as that person's coming up with uh, a new way of doing whatever their craft entails, right? But for the most part, When you're selling chairs that are supposed to be of a certain uh, quality and a certain uh, usability, then you're selling those chairs with that quality and usability. There's not a lot of free play involved, even if you're able to play with the elements of design and so on. And we might even make a a fine uh, distinction and say that insofar as you're doing that, insofar as you're playing with those elements of design, you're functioning as an artist within the overall umbrella of, uh, of, of craft. But art, especially for someone like Immanuel Kant, who in the third critique, the critique of judgment, says that our approach to art is to be disinterested. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, this, this stance of disinterest, which doesn't mean that we're not interested in art, but that we're interested in it with the quality of disinterest, by which he means, at the very least, and it might mean several other things, but at the very least, we are not invested in its existence in the same way that we're invested in the existence of things that satisfy our needs and uh, direct desires, right? So if I'm hungry, the existence of that hamburger matters very much, and I'm interested in it because of what it will do for me. It is an, a means to an end a means to satisfying my hunger. But Guernica by Picasso, the fact of its existence isn't the same, it doesn't have the same weight. It's not doing anything directly for me. Now, of course, if I were wealthy enough to buy it, then we could say that that uh, it has interest for me and that it's a good investment. But then we're not treating it as art. We're not treating it within the realm of aesthetics for Kant. We're treating it within the realm of economics. Okay. So let's back up a bit. So we have this notion that art involves a lack of connection to our immediate needs, whereas craft, by and large, doesn't, right? I need the saddle in order to ride the horse. So I want to find someone who is good at making saddles uh, and that they will fit the specifications that I desire, right? No different from I recently bought headphones and I looked at all the specifications and I picked the ones that uh, seem to comport to my needs, Right? There might be an artistry of some sort involved in the designing of headphones. I'm not trying to deny that. But it's under the overarching logic of craft. It's meant to suit needs. Art is freer in, the, in that way. It doesn't suit needs that you know you have. Right. In fact, that's part of Kant's point about art is that it presents you with ideas that weren't there before. 
And, and the aesthetic idea, remember, for Kant is not an idea in a conceptual way, right? It's an idea that's leading you to new forms of thought, new ways of seeing the world, new ways of being engaged. And those are things that are created in the moment of creating the artwork. It's not like the artist thinks of the aesthetic idea first and says, okay, this is, so it's not a, it's not a concept like, like for instance, we might say, well, uh, the concept behind this book is to uh, talk about, I don't know, interfamilial tensions, right? Well, that's not an aesthetic idea for Kant because the aesthetic idea is particular to this investigation of familial tensions, let's say Hamlet, right, which certainly deals with familial tensions. But we can't reduce it to saying, well, it's a play about familial tensions. If we did so, we would say that we're missing something important about the artistry of the play. The true aesthetic idea for Kant involves our ability, our imagination, it involves our ability to work with uh, this, this idea in the sense of a kind of free-floating sense of, of possible associations. So it's the idea in its set of possibilities and potentialities more than in its concrete determination. So this is why he says that aesthetic ideas point toward a concept that, of course, can never appear because it's not one concept. It's, the, it's potentiality, right? Once you treat it as though it's one concept, think of how silly it probably sounded in some ways to say that Hamlet is a play about familial tension. It's not that it's not true. It's that it's way too reductive. It doesn't get at what we think is interesting about Hamlet. In fact, very little does because what we think about Hamlet when we're thinking well about Hamlet, I think, is when we're engaged in the various potentialities of insight that are involved in Hamlet. So art, then, involves freedom and it involves play. That doesn't, that's not meant to denigrate art. It's not meant to say that art is just simply play. In fact, I would say that play is not simply play. And that's what I want to turn to now, is the intricacies of play and what's involved in the issue of play. Play, in some ways, involves rules. And we want to be cognizant of how those rules emerge. It's not a straightforward thing. You could say, of course, that, that, that's, uh, that there are certain forms of play that involve fairly stringent rules that you know ahead of time. Right? Sports, for instance. That's why there are fouls in basketball and soccer and so on. Right? Because the, you've broken a rule in some manner and there's a penalty. Same thing with hockey, right? There's a penalty box in hockey. When you buy a board game, it comes with a set of rules. But those are different kinds of rules. They're the sort of basic parameters to keep play in motion. The rules of play don't necessarily dictate all of the aspects of play or else there would be no creativity. For instance, think of chess, right? A game that a lot of people like to talk about when they're uh, thinking about play. Each of the pieces moves in a certain characteristic way, right? The knight with its L shape, uh, the, the um, rook can only move in straight lines and so on, right? The queen is more flexible. You can think of those as rules. They're rules for motion. But the meat of the game of chess is not simply dictated by those rules of motion. The meat of the game, what we're interested in when we're playing the game or when we're watching other people play the game or reading one of the many books about strategy in chess, what we're interested in is how those basic parameters, those basic fairly loose limitations lead to a variety of strategies for moving through that complex of relationships. Chess, like any other form of play, is in its basis creative. We're working with certain limitations and working against those limitations in order to arrive at a satisfying outcome. And what is satisfying in play, of course, right? We wouldn't play if it wasn't fun. But what's satisfying is the way in which it tests our creativity. It tests, in some ways, tests our bodies depending on the type of game, right? We find we can do things that we weren't so sure we could do. In a good game of soccer, I'm not thinking about the exact angle of my foot against the ball. 
I'm feeling my way through it. I've, I've incorporated the moves in soccer to such an extent that they become a natural outflowing, and I'm going to be using that term a lot, flow, right? A natural outflowing of my relationship to the ball and the field and the other players. And notice that the, those, that set of relationships keeps ramifying. It keeps becoming more and more um, inclusive. So if I'm thinking about the soccer uh, example, right, and the ball comes to me and I want to uh, drive it up the court, right, up the, up the field, then in one sense I'm concentrating solely on that ball. But if I'm doing it well, then I'm also concentrating on the, the field itself or else I could easily go out of bounds or whatever else. Right. I'm also, of course, if, if I'm doing it well, concentrating on the players on the field, but not just where they are now, but where they might be. Right. So the, what you're dealing with is a set of potentialities. Play involves potentiality. It involves creativity. It involves navigating a set of possible futures. And so some of the rules, if we think of it in that way, if we think of, of this moment, in the, imagine me on the soccer field, right, and the balls come to me and my, my um, center of focus keeps zooming outward from my, the, the point of contact between my foot and the ball to the ball as such and my body in space as such to my body in space with the ball on the field to that field being populated with people that are in certain positions to that field not only being populated with people in certain positions but those people being in potentiality to a set of other positions some of which I can predict some of which I can't entirely predict. And then all of a sudden you see that there are a bunch of rules involved in that moment of me having the soccer ball and wanting to drive it up the field. There are a bunch of sort of contingent rules, right? Rules that apply at this moment that I can see in retrospect as rules, that if I'm in this situation, these are the things that I might do. And those are rules that are emergent. They emerge out of the game. They're not stipulated ahead of time. Nobody says, well, if the ball comes to you in this precise manner then, and, and the people are arrayed on the field, that's too many things to think about. And it takes away from the fun of it anyway. The fun is to be involved in that moment and to try to read the moment and read your reaction to the moment. So play involves rules in various ways, but those rules are emergent. That's why you can ruin games. Let's think about the freest of free play. Let's think about just imagination games, right? My son and I play imagination games all the time. We used to play a game that he calls apartment where uh, I was a, a fairly wealthy guy. I used to dress in a robe uh, over my clothes so that I looked like Hugh Hefner or something. And uh, he would try to sell me apartments, condominiums or whatever, you know, and there were stuffed animals involved and they played various roles and so on. Now, often in the middle of these negotiations, a tornado would uh, come ripping through the town or some other kind of natural disaster. I'm not sure why that was happening. That was just what my son happened to enjoy doing. And he would bring up the uh, national alert system on his phone to recreate, you know, this, this notion of the earthquake or the tornado or whatever, right? Now, the rule of the game that emerged, it became very clear to me in playing these games, was that I was to follow his lead. If I called too much attention, the, the stuffed animals, by the way, they were allowed commentary. They were almost a Greek chorus. They were allowed a certain amount of latitude with commentary, that somewhat ironic commentary on the game. They could point out the kind of silliness of it. If I pointed out the silliness of it in my own voice, I was the voices, by the way, of the, of the I, I, I made the voices for the stuffed animals. But if I said something seemingly sarcastic about the game in my own voice, it ruined the game. He didn't tell me this ahead of time. He probably never even thought about it very much. Now, if I talk to him about it in retrospect, he'd probably just say, oh, that's interesting. I don't know. I don't know. I'll ask him, see what he says. But the point is that the rules were emergent. They emerged as we played the game. I figured out that the stuffed animal, Barry, was allowed to be sarcastic about the game, but I, as Chad, I was not. Or I, as dad, or whatever. I was not. That would ruin the game. And would lead to disappointment. So games are negotiations. Play is a negotiation between you and the people that you're playing with. Or when you're an artist and you're working alone, then it's between you and the materials that you're shaping or between you and your, your um, audience that you're sort of uh, anticipating, right? Now, 
Brian Sutton Smith, in an article called Evolving a Consilience of Play Definitions, playfully, he writes this, quote, play as a unique form of adaptive variability instigates an imagined but equilibrial reality within the disequilibrial exigencies uh, within which disequilibrial exigencies can be paradoxically simulated and give rise to the pleasurable effects of excitement and optimism. The genres of such play are humor, skill, pretense, fantasy, risk, contest, and celebrations, all of which are selective simulations of paradoxical variability, end quote. Now, that's a mouthful of academic writing, right, of course, but it's, it's worth pondering carefully. So let's unpack it a bit. Let's go through it carefully. Play is unique. It provides an outlet for creativity and social intercourse that is not provided in the same manner in other social and cultural situations. There's something special about play. And it involves, it's a form of adaptive variability. So Sutton Smith seems to think that it's evolutionary in some fashion, and a lot of people do. Even Darwin saw the play of mammals as being part of their evolutionary makeup. Right? Play is not exclusive to human beings. It's found in a lot of animal species. And so it provides a relatively safe space to practice adapting to the variable conditions of reality and experience. It's a way of practicing choice and decision-making. Some forms of play condition us to respond more swiftly, so we get the feel of hitting a baseball or kicking that soccer ball that comes to us at a fairly steep rate of speed. We learn to feel not just think the mechanics of impact in playing pool or fluid mechanics in swimming. Then Sutton Smith says the part that interests me perhaps the most. He says that play instigates an imagined but equilibrial reality within which disequilibrial exigencies can be paradoxically simulated and give rise to pleasurable effects of excitement and optimism. End quote. That's a very interesting statement to me. Again, academic uh, writing aside, there are many things to unpack there, right? So what play does is it deals with the imagination. It's not reality exactly, it's the imagination. And it's an imagined but equilibrial reality. So it's pulling on the elements of reality, even though it's set aside from reality in some way. But it's not just that, it's a reality that's in balance. It's a reality where I can play against you without being literally against you. A play is not a street fight. Uh, an act of play is not a street fight, right? So even when I lose, play is the tide that raises all boats, right? Unless I'm a poor sport, I suppose. But if I'm playing a game of chess with my brother, right? I don't get sour when I lose. I enjoy the time that I'm spending with him. I enjoy seeing how the moves unfold, seeing how my brother's creativity is tested against mine. So we can test each other through, through competition. Competition can be part of play without it being a zero-sum outcome, you know, the term zero-sum game. Now, of course, that's a, that would seem to work against what I'm saying, right? That there are zero-sum games where only one of you can win. What I'm suggesting is that even when you're playing a zero, uh, what we might call a zero-sum game, like chess, where only one of us is going to win, it's still not really a zero-sum game in the way, say, war might be considered a zero-sum game. Because it's the act of, of creative togetherness that makes it a win for me either way. This is what's equilibrial about the imagined reality of play. And it's within which, so, so it's, it's instigating this equilibrial reality within which disequilibrial exigencies can be paradoxically simulated. The world we live in is not equilibrial. It's not balanced. We often suffer from a lack of balance, right? That's why so many of us are seeking a way to infuse our lives with more balance. Well, plays one of those ways in which we experiment with that. We recognize the lack of equilibrium in the world, and play gives us a chance to work that out in some fashion. This is why it leads, as he says, to optimism and excitement, because it shows that we can be efficacious with respect to disequilibrium, with respect to unequal opportunity, and we can lead toward 
a greater sense of equilibrium, a greater sense of balance. So he's saying that, that rather difficult sentence, right? That it's an evolutionary adaptation where we learn how to adapt to the variability of life, where we're working with an imagined reality, not pure fantasy. We're drawing on actual reality. Uh, and to, to borrow the story I was telling from the story I was telling about my son, right? Tornadoes are reality. And I guess on some level, he was worried about natural disasters. That's why they kept coming into our play. But one thing always happened in our games. We always survived, right? And that's an important part of games and play, that it shows that you can work through difficulties and still survive. You can work through things that are frightening and still survive. Roller coasters are a form of play like that, right? We're afraid. We're playing with our body, quite literally. We're playing with the things that trigger fear in our body. And yet we live through it. And it causes us to laugh, to be excited, and perhaps to experience optimism. And notice his genres of play. He has humor, skill, pretense, fantasy, risk contest and celebration. We're going to see that all of those apply in some manner to bebop when we get to that in the third um, segment here. So I'm going to sum up for this segment. Play is not a thing. Even a game is not a thing, even if it comes in a box, right? In fact, the game of Monopoly doesn't come in a box. The material basis for the game comes in the box. The game is what happens in building on that material basis in working creatively with and against each other. And notice that the against is always with here, right, in a game. When I'm truly at play in the game of chess, and I'm not treating it as uh, ego-sustaining competition, but I'm treating it as play, when I'm truly playing the game of chess, then even though you're against me, you're with me. Even though you're my opponent, you're helping me in creating this space of possibility of hope, of optimism, of fun. So the game here, right, uh, isn't the material basis. It's what you build on that material basis. That's why, you know, my family's copy or, or, or instantiation of Monopoly, most of the pieces were missing, you know. The, the, the dog, which is the one everyone liked, was gone. So we used the little um, Snoopy uh, toy that one of us had when we were kids, and that was the dog. And so more and more, anything can substitute in because that's not the game. The actual material properties are not the game. The game is, is what comes out of that. A game is not something that simply is, it's something that becomes, it's something that happens. Play is a process. In fact, even the freest of play is a process that moves in the direction of order, of coherence. You can think of the play of me with my son, right? That, that anything can happen, and yet the point is some kind of coherence that we can see afterward. Or think of improv theater, right? The structure of improv theater emerges through the act of play. First, someone throws out some random set of words, right? That's the, usually the opening gambit for improv theater. And then the, the actors on the stage, they work with that material and shape it. And so it gets to be more and more coherent as it goes along. That's how play operates. And so the rules of play are, in some fashion, emergent. And that has, perhaps, a political implication. So let's talk about this notion of emergence in relation to Kant in the next segment. Then we'll talk about politics of play in the third.
Freedom is a concern for Immanuel Kant in all three of his critiques, in the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals, and in his essay, What is Enlightenment, and in various other places as well. Therefore, it's a pretty thoroughgoing topic of concern for Kant. In the first critique, and we'll just touch on some elements of the critiques, in the first critique, Kant doesn't claim to have established the positive existence of freedom, but he does claim to have established the conceivability of freedom and its compatibility with the causal mechanism of nature. He's established the conceivability of it, but he hasn't given us a clear sense of how it works. In the second critique, he purports to have demonstrated the reality of freedom in a practical sense. But here's the third critique that should interest us, because he claims there that judgment, through the concept of purposiveness, creates a bridge between nature and freedom. Right? In other words, it creates a bridge between the first and the second critique. The realm of, of determination, of, of, of causality, of things being determined, right? That uh, nature he often categorizes as though it's one of total determination, that, that there are causes and effects in the chain, and that everything can be sort of worked out through that, that set of relationships. The second critique, of course, is about practical freedom. We make decisions. We make a difference. And that difference comes from a place of not determination, of, of specifically being able to do otherwise. So the third critique, he claims at least, creates a bridge between these two realms that should, by all rights, seem unbridgeable. Now, we'll return to the broader issue of freedom and the possibility of freedom in the two upcoming episodes on Outlaw Country. But for this episode, we're interested in two things. One thing which I just mentioned, this idea of the bridge. And we'll talk more about that in the next segment. But the other is something that seems like a relatively small, but a weighty claim made in the third critique. Recall Kant's claim that judgments of beauty are both subjective and universal. They're grounded in subjective feeling, and feeling is not the realm of determinate concepts where I can point to a squirrel, you call it a dog, and I objectively demonstrate that you're wrong. Right? So we're dealing with subjective feeling. You can't do that with aesthetic judgment. I can't prove you wrong. No argument will make you see the error of your ways if you say that Picasso's Guernica is not aesthetically compelling, and I say that it is. I can present various rhetorical arguments, and I either persuade you or I don't. But I can't prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt that you're making a conceptual error the way that I would hope that I can with respect to the squirrel that you mistook for a dog. But at the same time, Kant claims that judgments of beauty are universal, that I can't help but feel. Again, this is subjective, I suppose. This is, uh, subjective in the sense that I can't help but feel. Not subjective in the sense that it only pertains to me. That's an important distinction with Kant, right? Part of what he means by the subjective is just how we're built, the conditions of possibility for how we respond to the world. At any rate, he claims that, that judgments of beauty are universal because I can't help but feel that if I find something beautiful, so should you. Now, this was explained as deriving from the fact that we all share the same faculties. And since an aesthetic judgment involves, as he puts it, the free play among the faculties of at least the imagination and the understanding, and since we all have those faculties, and we imagine they function when they're functioning well in more or less the same way, then it would seem that the judgment of beauty would be compelling in other words, if I find something beautiful, I expect that you do as well, that you're compelled to feel the same. Now, that doesn't mean that is the case, of course, and Kant recognizes that is not the case, that we can genuinely disagree about what is and is not aesthetically pleasing. And yet our experience of the judgment is that we feel it to be necessary. That's, part, that's one of the uh, aspects right, of Kant's view of aesthetics, that we don't feel that we're making some kind of arbitrary judgment based on our own sensibilities, the way that we do with the pickle, right, where I have, I like a dill pickle and I don't expect you to not like bread and butter pickles even though I can't stand them, right? When it comes to art, I do expect you to see something aesthetically 
revealing or pleasing or whatever in, in Picasso's Guernica. That's what, what happens when I understand it as art. So there's an element of necessity there. The question is, why? Why does Kant think this thing? He knows that it's not easy to prove, that it seems self-contradictory, that it leads him into a whole bunch of problems, bucking against a long-standing belief that the whole point of art was that, uh, that or taste rather, aesthetic taste, uh, was that you can't really discuss it because there's no way to convince anyone. So why is he doing this? Now, Kant suggests that the harmonious relationship of the imagination and the understanding is an integral element of basic cognition. And this is part of it, right? That it's not just something that operates in aesthetic understanding, it operates all the time. The harmoniousness here. So that, for instance, when I recognize the squirrel, when I see this furry creature in front of me, I recognize it as a squirrel and I subsume it all quickly, all at once, basically. I subsume it within the concept of squirrel, and so this thing shows up to me as a squirrel, that there's a harmoniousness there. That's obvious, right? It wouldn't be a dissonance, right? It's obvious that the imagination, which puts together my sensory impressions and creates a representation of it for me to work with, and my understanding, which has the con conceptuality in place, right? That the understanding subsumes, the concept within the understanding subsumes the uh, representation put forward by the uh, imagination, and there's a nice fit. And, I, and, and that, that is a sense of harmony, right? They're working together. They're not confused. There's no dissonance between them. They're working well together. And Kant also claims that aesthetic judgment also depends on the harmonious relationship between the imagination and the understand, understanding. So it follows that if we're all functioning in the same basic way, as demonstrated by cognition, this is Kant's argument, right? Cognition demonstrates that we're all functioning in the same way. We don't get confused when I point to this thing and say, oh, that's a squirrel or that's a tree or whatever, right? Uh, so the fact that since we're all um, functioning in basically the same way and I can prove you wrong when you're mistaken about the squirrel to your satisfaction, right? Unless you're being recalcitrant, unless you're just being stubborn. Uh, if, if you're following the game of conceptuality here, then you, can, you will say to me, oh, yeah, sorry, I don't know what the heck I was thinking. That's clearly a squirrel and not a dog. Right? And since we function the same basic way in that respect, and that has to do with harmoniousness, then we should also experience the harmony of the faculties in the same way vis-a-vis -vis beauty. So you, you see how the argument's working here, right? That beauty and, and um, determinate judgment share a quality. They both have to do with the harmoniousness between the understanding and the imagination. And since... The understand, since cognition also deals with the harmoniousness between the understanding and the imagination, and I can prove to you to your satisfaction that you're mistaken when you're mistaken conceptually about the thing that you're seeing. And so we're clearly functioning the same way with respect to that harmoniousness. Then we should be functioning with this in the same way with respect to the harmoniousness of our uh, judgment of beauty. Maybe it's not surprising to you, though, that many readers find this argument less than persuasive because of that jump. There are a couple of consequences of the argument. And one, to many people, one of those consequences is this. If the harmony of the faculties provides aesthetic pleasure, then why isn't every act of cognition aesthetically pleasurable? Right? I go in the bathroom, I recognize a clogged toilet. I cognize a clogged toilet. Right? I, there's this representation in my imagination of, of this, the various muck in the toilet and the fact that it won't flush. And conceptually, I subsume it within the, the, the concept of clogged toilet. I don't find that pleasurable. Do you? Trust me, I don't. Right? So that's not aesthetically pleasing. So obviously not all harmoniousness between the understanding and the imagination is going to be aesthetically pleasing. Now, you might say, well, that's fine. Aesthetic judgment and empirical cognition, those are two different things. But if that's the case, then how is Kant justified in arguing from one to the other in order to claim universality? And that's precisely what he does. So you can see there's a problem here. Even if you're not that concerned with all the, uh, the details, you can see there's a problem. Now, Kant characterizes the free play he describes as imagination relating to understanding 
the the free play he's describing in in aesthetic um, judgment is the imagination relating to understanding without being governed by a definite concept. We've discussed this before, right? And yet, he says, imagination here involves a lawfulness. So it's a lawfulness without a law. What goes on here? How are we to understand this? Now, if you've listened to earlier episodes of this podcast, you know the basic answer. The imagination appeals to understanding to form something like a concept. It deals with concepts in general, right? Those, those big four, quantity, quality, modality, and relation. But it's not a definite concept. It's not squirrel or tree or dog. And that's why we say that you can never say enough when you're trying to discuss art, right? No concept seems, no definite concept seems fitting to the artwork. There's always more to say. And that's because we said that what aesthetic judgment does is it relies upon an indeterminate concept, which seems to be a contradiction in terms. But when we were talking about the aesthetic ideas, we got a sense of what that might mean. That what happens is the representation of the art object in our imagination outpaces our conceptuality. It outpaces our ability to pin it down. And so it's suggestive of the possible, of the potential. But the problem that I wanted to investigate in this segment still remains. Where does that lawfulness come from? How can we have a lawfulness without a law? And I think this has a lot to do with play, ultimately. That just as we saw in the last segment, where the rules, the laws, if you wish, of play emerge in the act of playing, even though the moves might be uh, prescribed like they are in chess, the, the law, whatever it is that gives the, the, the meaning or the, the meaningfulness, better yet, right? Not one meaning, but meaningfulness is this productive uh, kind of overarching um, efflorescence of potentiality, of flowing forth of possibility. That that emerges in the act of play. Even in the game of chess where all those moves are prescribed, whatever gives the law, so to speak, to this game of chess emerges in me playing with my brother. Whatever law or rules emerge in the game of apartment that I used to play with my son, they emerged in the act of playing. And they didn't have to stay the same from instantiation of the game to the next game. In fact, that was the whole joy. It was a joy of discovery. Well, that aspect of lawfulness seems to be at play here that there's a uh, that's part of what's pleasurable when and maybe there's a pleasure in, in some and Kant seems to suggest this that maybe there's a pleasure in some low level in the harmonious relationship always between the imagination and understanding so even when I see a clogged toilet there's at least the minimal pleasure of recognizing it as something and having that sense of mastery and control over it but what aesthetic pleasure is it's that efflorescence it's that flowing forth because it's not just one meaning it's meaningfulness as such it's the productive, creative outflowing of possibility and meaningfulness. And so a law emerges, but it's an, a law of the otherwise, in a sense. It's not a law that's pinned down. It's the notion that things make sense, but they don't have to be this way. And the next time I play, they might not. So now let's turn to bebop as a form of play and question whether or not that can be productive of a kind of politics of play.
In the last episode on Bebop, we talked about what I was calling the two zones of early Bebop. Harlem and 52nd Street. And I said that Harlem was a zone, in a sense, of escape, right? It was a certain kind of otherwise. It was the otherwise of seclusion. That if the normal workings of the environment, in uh, both the environment, the racial environment in the U.S. and the environment of the economics of the swing era, if those weren't necessarily working out yet for these young players that would become the early beboppers, then there was a zone up in Harlem where they could escape it, where they could play for each other, where they could develop a kind of idiosyncratic and more or less private language, a language that built on the public language of the swing idiom, uh, that was connected to it in various ways, uh, rhythmically and harmonically and melodically, and yet moved beyond it. In the same way that jive talk is related to English and yet moves beyond it and becomes, in essence, incomprehensible to people who aren't willing to follow it down that rabbit hole. And that's certainly what happens with bebop as well. It becomes incomprehensible to people who aren't willing to follow its logic. And notice that that's how Dizzy Gillespie put it, right? That at first they were developing this kind of arcane set of, of prescriptions for how to fool players that uh, weren't up to their standards, right? Where the music was becoming too disjunct and too harmonically recondite for these others to follow. And so it outed them as being less than polished performers, or certainly less polished than uh, someone like Dizzy Gillespie or Thelonious Monk, or less creative, or less adventurous. Less, right? But that what Dizzy Gillespie said happened then was he they became interested in their experiments as music. And I made a big deal out of this notion of as music. And that this was the moment of transformation. That this wasn't just a way of kind of policing borders, policing the borders of one's own seclusion, but it led to the opening up of that other zone, which also involved an otherwise. But now it was a worked out, a manifested otherwise, an otherwise within the realm of the public, within the realm of the economic, right? Scott DeVoe says that it's naive to think of bebop as totally anti-commercial, and yet Bebop works on a set of contradictions. It's this private language brought into the public in 52nd Street. It's this anti-commercial impulse that's rejecting, in some ways, uh, the, the economic understandings of the swing era. And yet it's building on them in other ways. It's not rejecting them entirely, right? We saw with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie that there's a sense in which Bebop presents itself as a rejection of the past, and yet becomes assimilated into the tradition. And we saw that those two modes of viewing it were characterized by Parker and Gillespie, respectively. So there's this very interesting, I think, negotiation of freedom in Bebop. It's not like we'll see later, and, and perhaps we'll talk about this in some future episode, I don't know, but it's not like you see later in history with free jazz. Right. Although even free jazz, if you think of the album free jazz arranged by um, Ornette Coleman, uh, a lot of people complained about that al album because they could hear these characteristic figures of speech from from the jazz idiom that are just being played without a tonal center. Right. And so is that truly free? And so we have to ask this question, like, uh, is it possible to really be free uh, in, in art or in music? Or in anything. Or is that lawfulness without a law a curtailment in some ways of freedom? But not necessarily a bad one. This doesn't mean that, that, there's, uh, that uh, what I'm talking about here is the unfree. I'm not making some kind of pessimistic argument here. But any choice that we make limits other choices. Each choice that you make is, not, is, is uh, set in um, contradiction to the choices you didn't make. Right? So there's always this active curtailment of freedom. And indeed, some curtailment, right? some limiting of the, the uh, notion of total freedom seems to be almost necessary to artistic production. Right? With each thing we try to liberate, don't we maintain ties to some recognizable tradition in other parameters? Because otherwise, 
do you recognize it as the thing that you're liberating as being liberated, right? As opposed to just you're rejecting everything of the past and starting anew. If bebop feels in some way meaningfully to many people, and it clearly does, right? This isn't something I'm making up. It's all throughout the literature that bebop is somehow a representation of or an instantiation of or a working out of freedom. Then the question becomes, how does that work in an artistic enterprise, in an aesthetic realm? How does freedom show up here? And I'm suggesting that perhaps we only recognize what's been freed up if other parameters stay the same. Charlie Parker's rhythmic approach isn't a total break from swing, and yet there's enough of it that's different that it stands out as a new approach. But it's not incomprehensible. This is why uh, Gillespie had no problem tying it back in to the jazz tradition. The fact of uh, the, the way that their contrafacts work, right? The idea of taking rhythm changes, the chord progression, I got rhythm, and creating new music on top of that, like, for instance, anthropology, or taking how high the moon and creating new music on top of that, new, new arrangements and new melodies like ornithology. Both of those are tunes by Charlie Parker, of course. That The mere fact of doing that is dragging along something from that tradition, I mean, you could ask yourself, well, if what you're doing is you're fleshing out these chord progressions and making them a little more complicated and you have these disjunct melodies, why not just go whole hog? Why not go for the whole thing? Why bother keeping so many of these traditional uh, chord progressions? Now, there are a couple different explanations for this. I'm trying to remember who it was, and it's not coming to me off the top of my head. But one was uh, that, that when you were playing on 52nd Street, the un understanding would be that you were playing tunes that people would recognize, but that these musicians didn't necessarily want to play, pay the ASCAP fees uh, that they would have to play, pay, if, uh, or that the venue would have to pay, if they played the tunes as written. In other words, if you played the actual melody. So if you change some elements of the of the chord progression and you put a new melody over it you don't have that same situation so there's a practical element here oh i'm playing how high the moon you might not recognize it as how high the moon so there's there's also that kind of coded language or that element of jive right that i'm saying something that you feel you should recognize and yet you don't quite recognize it and you feel alienated but again if devoe's right and this isn't a total anti-commercial impulse then one has to be careful of the amount of alienation there has to be enough that you grab onto that you feel like you're with it in the right way. I mean, that's the whole point of, of clicks in general, right? You have enough of insider knowledge to feel like you're operating, and yet you lack just enough that it keeps you compelled. It keeps you, you want to live up to it in some fashion. And so the, but I'd say there's another justification for using those old progressions as well, how high the moon, rhythm changes, and so on. And that is that you have to set some limitations in order to explore freedom. Even John Cage said this, right? Uh, we might say that John Cage, many people would say that John Cage in some ways liberated music even from sound itself, right? That's what 4 minutes and 33 seconds was supposed to do. But of course, it does no such thing. You are attending to the sounds. They're not just not sounds that, that Cage created, but he puts a frame around it, a literal quantitative frame of 4 minutes and 33 seconds where you're listening to the quote-unquote ambient sounds. But even then, you, are they ambient, really? Are they people around you rustling? People who are making sounds while listening for sounds that you're making and that other people are making, right? And he puts a frame around that. So even in, in these situations, you're not getting rid of everything. There's still the sound involved and the attentive listening to sound. Cage suggested in, in some of his writings in Silence, the famous collection of his essays, that self-imposed limitations were absolutely crucial to the ability to create. That just the, the uh, right to do anything gets you nowhere. That the first decisions you make are limitations. point wasn't to do just anything, but to do anything possible within chosen and accepted limitations. Now this jibes in some ways with Kant's paradox in the What is Enlightenment essay. If you recall from the last episode, Kant suggests toward the end of that essay that civic freedom leads to intellectual freedom, but it also, quote, establishes insurmountable barriers. And so a lesser degree 
of Zoe Freedom, however, creates room to let that free spirit expand to the limits of its capacity, end quote. And if you recall, I, I said in that episode that this was an, uh, a seemingly paradoxical suggestion that some lack of freedom in the civic arena, in one's political life, leads to a kind of intellectual freedom, a creative freedom. Now, this makes me think a little bit of the introduction to the critique of pure reason, where Kant's talking about the dove, and he says that, you know, the dove gets into the thin air and it feels how, how well it's moving with this uh, less amount of, of air friction. So it imagines, oh, I would move even better if I were able to go into space where there's no air at all, right? I'm paraphrasing, of course. And I think there, there's something significant here because the suggestion from Kant is that that's not how it would be. He wouldn't be freer. He wouldn't move more freely. In fact, he wouldn't move at all, right? If, if he, unless he started off moving, I suppose. But that without that resistance, there'd be no way to move. And I think there's something to be said here. I'm not saying that this is a, a rule of art or anything, but about bebop, this notion that the resistance that the musicians are facing in, at 52nd Street, for instance, remember we told the story of Dizzy Gillespie having to run from some uh, soldiers on leave, or some, some uh, I think they were sailors actually, on leave uh, and hide in the subway uh, station because he, he was being chased because they saw him as representative of a black man who was no longer um, abiding by his station, so to speak, right? That he was too liberated, he was too free. And you could see that Gillespie, of course, was very interested in this idea of the freedom of, of expression, freedom to experiment. But all of this was in tandem with the idea of working against a system that was against you. We saw that last time in Thelonious Monk when he said that he was trying to create a language that they couldn't steal, right? That the official uh, representatives of swing the, the established big bands, would be unable to steal. So several things come to mind here with Bebop. That you're working against a set of limitations. Some are self-imposed, some are simply imposed by society. There's an element of signifying here, where you're using uh, established, recognizable forms and chord progressions, and yet you're pushing them to their limits. You're working at the limits of, of your identity and of the identity of the music. Think of the extensions in bebop, for instance. The idea that a chord, and, and remember that uh, Parker said that he first discovered how to play what came to be bebop by playing in the upper parts of these chords. Right? Where things become more distant from the chords and yet they're still tethered in some way to the chords. And you can create melodies from those upper uh, notes that are less moored by the triads, the fundamental triads, and therefore seem to pull away from the gravity of that, the thinner air of the dove. Not outer space where there's no friction at all. There's still friction, there's still a reference point, there's still the harmony. But you're in those upper limits of it, the thinner air, where you move a little more freely. And it seems to me that that's part of what bebop is in general. It's not anti-commercial. I agree with DeVoe. That's naive. And yet, it's not working within quite the same commercial construct as the swing era. Certainly just not the size of it and not the, tie, uh, the, the tied-down nature to dance and to, to the functions of bebop. It's still serving a function it's in these, these basement clubs and so on, but it's a function focused on listening, a, a function focused on uh, making sure that people feel like they are with it to a degree and not quite with it. Albert Murray, when he's talking about bebop, he says that what it involves is the, quote, velocity of celebration. And there's something I like about that. We tend to think of fast music, and bebop is fast music, as relatively free music. In one sense, it's not, of course, because you have to have what you're going to do more or less in mind in order to do it at that fast of a rate, or else you lose that sense of rhythm. Anyone who's not good at playing fast knows what that feels like and how awful it can feel. And yet, something about moving along at that pace feels joyous, feels like celebration. And I think Albert Murray's on to something with this idea of the velocity of celebration. But then another quote comes to mind, one from Ralph Ellison. He says that, he writes that usually music gives resonance to memory, but not the music then in the making, meaning bebop. 
Its rhythms were out of stride and seemingly arbitrary. And in it, the steady flow of memory, desire, and defined experience summed up by the traditional jazz beat and blues mood seemed swept like a great river from its own beat bed. We know better now and recognize the old moves and the new sounds, but what we know is that which was then becoming, end quote. This is a fascinating quotation to me, and I want to talk about it just a little more. Notice that he says that, that uh, usually music is tied to memory. It gives resonance to memory. It speaks from out of a tradition. But in this music, that didn't seem to be the case. The rhythms seemed arbitrary. They weren't. They seemed arbitrary. They were out of stride. They weren't in the normal way of moving that people were used to. But they seemed arbitrary without being arbitrary. And in this, it says, in it, the steady flow of memory, desire, and defined experience summed up by the traditional jazz beat and blues mood seems swept like a great river from its own beat bed. Things seemed out of alignment. But then he said something interesting. We know better now, he writes. We recognize the old moves in the new sounds, but what we know is that which was then becoming. So there's a distinction here between knowing and becoming. Knowing is only of things that are done in some fashion, things that are over, things that are past, because they're no longer becoming. They're done. They're frozen. But at that moment, it was hard to see that bebop was tied to tradition, because it was still in play. And this is, to my mind, and there's more to say here, of course, but to my mind, this is the way in which art as freedom as free, uh, the free play of imagination and understanding. That serves as a bridge for Kant between freedom and, and uh, nature. Determination, right? Determinacy. That what's happening here is that in its act of becoming, in being in play, playing, like we play musical instruments, like these musicians were playing at bebop, is about a negotiation of space and possibility and time. All of those are operative. And it's finding a way, and, and all of that has its resonances with the way things are. But what play suggests and what music suggests is that things might be otherwise, that things might be open to possibility. It doesn't define what that is. When it defines what it is, it's usually bad art. It's propaganda. It's saying, oh, things are like this, but they ought to be like this. But what music suggests, what art suggests at its best, is that it might be otherwise. It's suggestive, not definitional. It's open to possibility, not simply offering another concretion, another manifestation. This is Kant's problem, I think, with rebellion, with, with revolution, as he talks about in what is enlightenment, because all that does is it inverts hierarchies. I don't think Bebop was trying to invert hierarchies. I think it was trying to suggest in its slow, suggestive way up in the stratosphere, up in that area where the dove flies a little more freely, that things might be otherwise, that they don't have to continue as they are now, that they might be better. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoy what you heard. If you would like to know more about this podcast, visit my website at chadwickjenkins.com or write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. That's cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you soon.